Hello, boys and ghouls, and welcome to an insanely good episode. Join us, won't you, as we analyze a few of those macabre movies whose main members have gone most mad. So take off your jacket, dim the lights, and ask any additional voices to quiet down. As we present Boys and Ghouls episode 36, Mad Marchness. You want to see something really scary? They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead. Dummies, exploding heads. Psychos, fanatics, murderers, nutcases. Now, do we all agree that what we are dealing with is vampires? I know that one of you is a werewolf. Ain't nothing. Dead, I want to kill you. You ever talk to a corpse? Satan is our pal. It's boring. Throw the third switch! Not the third switch! Give my creation! Bye! Look at that face, it's just longing. Uh, do you know the cat better? It's more, um assessment and and planning and wait a minute are these noodles it's lasagna that are hanging getting ready to okay okay yeah, my mom was making lasagna and, and the cat it's was like lasagna in process the cat was wasn't allowed up on the table naturally naturally but um but he could sit on a chair and watch <laughs> wow also he's orange so there's the uh comparisons to garfield naturally all right cat um any spooky gab you know i was thinking about this on the way here and apparently i need to up my game because i haven't done anything spooky in the last month or so other than a door slammed in my apartment when i was alone that is scary it was probably the wind it was definitely the wind but you should know that when things like that happen i speak out loud to whomever it might be were you and alone just, at the time i was or was i do you know oh, what I mean? Yeah. But, you know, it was just kind of like a ka-slam. And I just sat up straighter and I was like, well, okay, hey there. You know, nice to, you're, everything's cool. We're all friends here. <laughs> Something to that effect. Listen, it was 110% the wind, but I ain't taking any chances. All right. So anytime anything spooky happens like that, anytime I move into a new apartment, things like that, I always make sure to speak to whoever's there if someone's there and just let them know I come in peace and in, we can all coexist. In your head, is it a slasher, an actual person, no, or like a it's ghost? it's a ghost. Okay, so these are all spirits you're talking Yeah, to. no, if I really suspected it was a human being in my apartment, that would be a different story. So that's all that spooky happened to me. What about you? Well, someone just was in my apartment. Oh, me. <laughs> yeah, you. As I, as I rounded the corner singing. Uh, I believe it was the Carpenters? It was. Yeah. It was, which is interesting, and we could do a whole podcast episode about that. <laughs> I don't know what podcast, but I'm just, fascinated that that's what you're singing when you're alone. I love it. I, was, I love uh, learning just, new things about you, Marshall. I'm on top of the world and looking, looking down, down on creation. creation. Oh, cat's here. <laughs> <laughs> you jumped. It was great. And I, to, to my credit, I did text you to let you know I was here in your living room 
but you didn't see it, so no. I got to scare you anyway. <laughs> and by the way, I never purposely try to scare anyone. I love being scared. I love when you do it to me. Don't take it the wrong way. And I love watching other people do it. Like, oh, I love sure. when Ellen DeGeneres gets on her kicks where she's scaring people. It's my, I have watched clips for hours. It's my favorite thing. I don't like doing it to other people. It's not fun for me. All right. But I love watching it happen. By the way, I've only scared you like three times, I think. That's three times more than most people in my life have scared me. I put the skeleton on the toilet. Yep. That was one. I made you a um, jello heart (laughs) and then put it in a valentine. So I opened it up thinking chocolates and there was a disgusting red dripping bleeding heart. Which we then ate with Cool Whip. Which we ate. Yeah, it was delicious. And I only said three because I'm sure there's one I'm forgetting. Um... I blew out the candle during our Bloody Mary. That's right. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. yeah. I'm just blowing out a candle. Shut up. Listen to that incident in our classic episode that just got released. Yeah. So it'll be right next to this one. It's really fun. I have friends who didn't start listening to Boys and Ghouls until a little later. So these classic episodes are truly new to them. There's only three left. Oh, <sighs> that's sad. Yeah. But I'm excited for them. <laughs> uh, it will I, be like I've I never heard them you before. For being able to listen to me. <laughs> I wish I could listen to me for the first time, but I can't. (laughs) So, uh, something that I did do is I ran into Keely. Uh Uh-huh. And she's like, hey, are you going to get tickets to a Scare LA? And I'm like, isn't that in August? And it is now February. Right. She's like, yeah, but on Monday they go on sale at 75% off. Holy cow. So I, I didn't know exactly when it would be, but I got up early. And then I hopped on and got one for me. And... One for Cat. Yay! I'm very excited. So this is ceremonial. This is me uh, giving you your ticket, Cat. Yay! I'm uh, so excited. It's, it's a printout, so I can just come up with more. But still, <sighs> there you go. That's for you to hold. Thank you. It does make it more real. Yeah. I love that. While I was investigating the Scarlet tickets, I went to their webpage, and I recognized the girl on, the, like, on their main page. And I was like, that looks like Hannah. Uh, Hannah, who I'm Facebook friends with, and I know sort of casually. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent an evening at a party with her once, but it was a murder mystery party, so neither of us were using our real names or personalities. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. But then after it was over, it was like, what, what's your real name? <laughs> and it was just sort of like a scramble to like assess everyone's actual personalities and be like, hey, you seem cool. I mean, you were someone else. Yeah. I'm Marshall. I talk like this. <laughs> Let's be Facebook friends. Yeah. So there you go. Nice. So I think she's demonstrated upon it, like makeup demonstrations and stuff. So maybe we'll see her there when we go to Scare LA. Also, Keely doesn't know that we have tickets, but her boyfriend, David Maddox, (gasps) listens to this podcast. Hi, David! So, David, do us a favor and just uh, tell Keely sometime between now and August. Yes, fearless leader. Bring the ashes from the crematorium. <laughs> Pour the hot water over it. Aha! Instant people! <laughs> Boy, is he nuts. Let's uh, get the ball rolling by saying, Hey, Kat. Hey, Marshall. You chose this topic. Probably not just as the pun that it is, because we were going back and forth on what our topic should be, and you just went, 
March Madness. Mm-hmm. Uh? <laughs> I did. And we had just gotten done with H.P. Lovecraft. And I think you just didn't want to be done. Well, you're probably right. But if that's true, it was subconscious. I did not think you about only... the connection, which sounds insane, but I really didn't. And then I got into In the Mouth of Madness and I was like, yes. oh my God, this movie is all Lovecraft. It's, it's not a little bit. It's a lot. It's completely, it's completely Lovecraft. Not to mention the fact that just, you're right, in general, madness and the overwhelming caverns of the human psyche is all Lovecraft. So obviously somewhere deep inside, I didn't want to be done. But in reality, I think I saw something about like basketball and I was like, <laughs> madness, madness. Oh, we can do something about insanity. And I didn't. I didn't think about the connection, but it does marry nicely. It's a nice companion piece to our last episode. Well, and I guess I should say this won't be including mad scientists. No. That's their I own I think that's topic. different, yeah. And neither of us want to exploit the mentally ill. Of course not. And we'll get into... The, I, I will get into that a little bit as far as the actual history of mental illness and our treatment of it. Then it was, um, well, aren't most slashers mad anyways? And you were like, no, 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 no. Marshall, <laughs> I want movies where I think you said people wind up like in straight jackets at the end. Basically, sure. you want to follow someone on their journey into madness. You don't want someone who just gets explained away as being insane. You're like, Mrs. Voorhees, well, she's insane. Right, exactly. Like, I, it, where I was more interested in topics where the insanity of a character or characters is key and a focus. Although, you know, what I found in doing research and looking at lists of horror movies about craziness is that many of them aren't ostensibly about someone who's insane. It's often a reveal at the end. Sure. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to talk about movies in this podcast without spoiling, spoiling something it? for people who are listening. Wow, what an ending. Who'd have thought Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's father? Ah, oh, thank you! Oh, thank you, Mr. Blow the Picture for me. The two examples you gave me, just to, sort of, to sort of get me going, I guess, was In the Mouth of Madness, and then 23. The number 23, yeah. Is, is that what it's called? Yeah, it's that's called, the full title. It's called The Number 23. Mm -hmm. And I realized that you wanted movies where people wrote on their own faces <laughs> after running out of rooms I mean, on walls. isn't it fun? By the way, it says balls on your face. So yeah, so those are the two examples uh, you gave me. I am keenly interested in knowing uh, what you've been watching. Okay, let me... Uh... Some of which you've been uh, tipping your hand, as <laughs> they say, in poker, insofar as what you've been putting up on your own Twitter page. So I realized, and I don't know if this is the due to the vast proliferation of movies about insanity in the market, or if I'm just realizing that I tend to be drawn to these types of movies, but I've seen a lot of movies, as opposed to some of the other topics we've done, where I'm like, I'd sure. really better do some research. I realize that I've seen a lot of stuff in this kind of avenue, but what I watched specifically for this podcast was, I, wa I re-watched In the Mouth of Madness because I had seen it as a kid um, and really loved it and, you know, wanted to rewatch it and refresh. Um, I watched... Alone in the Dark. Oh, I'm unfamiliar. Uh-huh. Uh, well, I'll tell you about it. I watched The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which has always been on a list of movies that I've never, somehow never seen. And I also watched, I stumbled upon this movie on my Roku. The reason I even looked at the description is because the poster for the movie was 
Anthony Perkins with a burning house behind him looking mm-hmm. very agitated. And the title is what got me. How awful about Alan, which is a TV movie from 1970 produced by Aaron Spelling. Oh, I know, because uh, have you seen after, it? no, but you put up a vine. I did. You put up two vines. I did. Just you watching this movie. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, I better get, just get on the same page as Kat. <gasps> did so, you watch it? Yeah, it's on YouTube. Uh, Yay, I'm you, so glad you watched it. Once you take out the commercials, it's only like 71 minutes. It's really short. Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot to say about it. But okay. what and, else did you watch? Well... I took a different tact, also with Anthony Perkins. Psycho will be its own episode at some point. But I thought I would go with a couple of movies where people are driven crazy. I love it. Or driven re-crazy, in the case of um, Psycho 2. I love it. You know, he was crazy, then he was cured, in quotes, and then someone's trying to drive him crazy again. That, by the way, is the plot of Psycho 2. I own a motel. Not too far from here. And you'd be welcome to uh, spend the night if you'd like. Who is this? My mother is dead. No, I I won't do that. You can't make me kill her. Psycho. It's starting again. Rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. So Psycho we've all seen, but what was your experience with the sequels? Part two... It's its own beast. Norman Bates, he comes home. He's all twitchy, and I think they would have had this as a, as a reason anyways for him not going into a halfway house after being really deemed cured from the insane asylum after 22 years. And no social workers are checking in on him because of cutbacks. And the early 80s was a big time for mental health cutbacks. Mm-hmm. So that fit. Totally plausible. Mm-hmm. And then he gets a job at a diner, and he's trying to get his hotel going again. And he meets a young lady who doesn't look that much like Janet Lee, Marion Crane. But she's young and pretty and has short hair. Meanwhile, though, someone's been leaving him notes and calling him on the phone, claiming to be mother. And it's not as great as Psycho 1, but does get better on second viewing once you know it's actually happening. Because people are actually trying to drive him crazy. And by the end, you've got sort of three factors going. You've got the people putting up fake things. Someone actually going around committing murders. And then the third threat becomes Norman's sanity. Once his sanity goes, then you've got him thinking that mother's around, someone going around actually being mother for fake, and someone actually being mother for real. Does this make sense? Who's being mother for real? Okay, well, you know what, everyone? You've had since 1983. (laughs) It turns out that his aunt shows up and says that she's his real mother. And that who he thought was his mother was actually his aunt. That when she went into the insane asylum, she had to give up her baby to her sister. And that's who raised him. And then Is he that went, true? Or is she just saying that? Actually, that's a reveal in part three. Turns out it's not true. <gasps> that crazy bitch. Turns out she is just the aunt who tried to kidnap him. And that's why she went in the insane asylum. This is a family of kooks. Yeah. So it turns out the sister and the aunt were both insane. And now Norman's... Also insane. So this is hereditary. Okay. But it made for a good ending. So you've got her going around as mother, and she thinks she's a mother. Uh-huh. As aunt, if nothing else. As an actual woman this time, but you never see her face. So you're like, is that Norman in a dress? Is that Vera Miles, who came back? Anthony Perkins is not the only uh, returning actor. Vera Miles from okay. part one is now sure. back, objecting to his release because he killed her sister. 
22 years earlier. Mm-hmm. Who's the person trying to drive him crazy? Vera Miles. Oh, it's Vera Miles. And her daughter. <gasps> Who's her daughter? It's the pretty girl with the short hair. No! Yeah. Wow. And then you're a step ahead of like one of the, the plots, which is she uses a fake name. She says her name's Mary. And you're like, all right, that's a common name. And then she says, my name's Mary Samuels. And those of us who are big Psycho fans know that that's the fake name that Marion Marion uses? uses in the registry. That's right. From part one, you know, because we're all fans of the movie. But Norman Bates is like, oh, yeah, it's Mary Samuels. That's a name. He doesn't make the connection, but yeah. we've made the connection. So now, like, we're a step ahead of him. But we still don't know what it means. And then we start following her. And even she doesn't know what's happening because there's even a third party. So I guess all, all in all, there's, like... Two people trying to drive him crazy. One who's actually going around killing people and his own insanity. So by the end, it becomes like a big farce. It's all just like timing and misunderstandings. And by the end, though, Norman is back where he's most comfortable, which is he's got a corpse of a mom upstairs. (laughs) And in his mind, it's yelling at him to uh, behave and stay away from dirty women. (sighs) Who wins at the end of that movie? The mother half of his brain, honestly is the only one who comes out on top. Right. There's one thing Norman Bates should have learned during his two decades of psychiatric treatment is that he never ever ever should have gone back inside that house again. By the way, I ran into uh, your friend and mine, Brian Rohan, uh-huh. who knows more about old movies than really anyone else I know and is a great fan of uh, Psycho and Anthony Perkins, second only to his love of uh, Jimmy Stewart, I'd say. And I was mentioning this to him and... He goes, you know, I've got Psycho 2 in my bag and 3 and 4. He had them in his bag? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I hear, well, it was... I just love that he happened to have them. Yeah. And when I said, you know, I was like, you know, when I record my podcast, Kat's going to ask, why do you have all three Psycho sequels in your bag right now? And he said, you tell her, because I do. <laughs> I love that answer. That's the only answer. Because you're crazy. You're crazy. You're crazy. Following just the idea of someone trying to drive someone else crazy, uh-huh. there's a term which is gaslighting. Mm-hmm. So I went back and watched Gaslight. He said there wasn't any liquor. He said I was going out of my mind. You're not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. But why? Why? Ingrid Bergman's in Ingrid it. Ingrid Bergman's in it. Uh-huh. Joseph Cotton. Uh-huh. I'd heard the term before I'd actually seen the movie. Yeah, it's kind of in the or vernacular. Or even knew that there was a movie. You know, it's like, oh, he's trying to gaslight her. Maybe you should explain the plot. Well, the plot the is, you know, there was a murder in the house and the young girl has never been back to the house. But now that she's married, he wants to move back into London. She's like, well, I have this house I haven't been in since the murder. But OK. So they move back in. And then the reason he's trying to drive her crazy is so that she'll get committed and he will then be left alone in the house to search for the missing jewels oh. that he murdered over. So all he's those the one who ago. committed the murder. He's the killer. Yeah. But is he literally what's referring to with the gaslight is oh. that he's turning the lights on and telling her they're not on or telling no, her they are actually, and they aren't or what's going on? Of all the things he does to drive her crazy, that one's just incidental. Oh. What he does do is take things and like put them in her purse and he's like, where's my watch? It's in your purse. And what'll make someone think they're crazy is finding evidence that they've done something that they can't remember doing. Right. That's a really big one. Um, I know that would make me feel crazy. She, more than anything, is doubting herself and doubting her sanity. She just stops leaving the house because she can't trust herself, which is actually the opposite of what he wants because he wants her out of the house, ultimately, so he can search for these jewels. 
So he wants to get her committed. He can't just search for them while she's asleep? He Jeez. couldn't just search for them during like the 11 years that the house was sitting completely empty. That he didn't need to like <laughs> go to, I think, Italy and meet her under assumed name and marry her and court her. It all does seem a little convoluted. And then move back into the house so he can then get her out of the house by driving her insane. That's the big gap. Now, the actual term gaslight. Yeah. And what that's referring to, um, this is set in, like, turn of the century, England. Mm -hmm. Everyone's still using gas. What happens is he'll go up to the attic where they put all of, like, the stuff that belonged to her aunt as he looks for the jewels uh, nearly nightly. But he says he's going to go out. And then he, like, sneaks up to the attic and turns on the gas so he can see what he's doing. But when you would turn on the gas back in the day to light the flame to light your lamps, if you turn on one room it'll sort of make the lights in the other rooms dim. So he'd say, I'm going out for a while, and then all the lights would dim, and she'd hear noises up in the attic. And then the lights would come back, and then he'd come back. And she'd be like, well, you were gone, all the lights turned dim. He's like, don't be silly. He's like, I'm worried about you. Yeah. Another thing was like the missing brooch. He's like, oh, here, this was my mother's, and don't lose it. I know how you've been forgetting things lately. And then he just like, takes it and sticks it in a drawer, and she's like, the brooch, the brooch. I'm going mad. Ugh. And at the end, okay, if it was remade today, she would have entrapped him somehow. As it is, Joseph Cotton, as the Scotland Yard detective, comes in, ties him up. So he's completely tied to a chair. But he still does have some mental control over her. And he's like, untie me quickly, I'm your husband. And then she like comes at him with a knife. Really, the movie's been leading to this, which is her getting back at him by saying like, or is it not even in my hand? Because I'm mad. <laughs> And she just kind of dangles the hope of freedom in front of him. And she's like, but I guess I can't because I'm so crazy. I love it. Take him away. That's really satisfying. Yeah, yeah, it is. So that's gaslight. That's gaslighting. And back in that era, you could just get your wife committed just on your say-so. Yeah. And fathers could be like, my daughter is crazy. There was, Lock in fact, uh, at some point during that time period, an association for, I don't know, I don't remember the acronym, but for the repeal or something of the right to involuntarily commit someone. Like there was a group of people arguing against involuntary commitment because they felt it was, obviously it was being abused. Yeah. Well, and there was one case in particular where fathers would be like, hey, you're going to marry this guy. I don't want to. Well, let's see what a week in the asylum does for you. <sighs> and then he'd come back like a week later and be like, no, I'm going to take her home. But so this father committed his daughter because she didn't want to marry the suitor. Is this a real chosen. case you're talking about? Yeah. But then the father died and she spent an abnormally <gasps> long amount of time in the asylum. That's really upsetting. Especially given I, I read about Nellie Bly in 1887. She assumed a fake name and got herself... Uh, went, went, Wore dirty clothes, stopped brushing her teeth, stopped taking baths. I was about to ask. And wandered in the streets, ranting until she got herself committed to Blackwell's Island in New York. This was because she was an <clears throat> aspiring journalist. She was, yes. And she made a name for herself as an investigative journalist, and this was kind of one of the big things she did. But she was there for maybe 10 days, and as soon as she went in, she dropped the act and mm. just spoke like a normal person and was very rational, but no one listened to her and... She wrote up how it was to be in there, and she explained being submerged in literal ice water, like an ice bath, and dragged out, and doing her very best to maintain her composure. She said, I must have looked crazy, because it was 
excruciating. And the way she described it kind of almost sounds like waterboarding, like the experience that she had. And she even said, like, two months in here would drive someone completely insane. You can lose your mind. But her work there inspired a lot of reform that was already apparently in the works. Like, they were going to start putting more funding into it and make it a better situation, apparently. But it, her reporting sped it along considerably. I I do more than anything. I'll really wonder what her out, her plan going in was to get out. I think she had it set up beforehand. She'd be crazy not to. She'd be crazy not to. Uh, Let's, let's take a moment just to, since we're all the way back in 1887 to talk about, um, about just briefly about the history of, psychiatry well i believe there is a history of psychiatry museum right here in los angeles (laughs) run by the scientologists yeah i think it's a little biased it is i know that uh psychiatry is is a pseudoscience what is considered normal or psychologically acceptable tends to be measured by what is considered to be normal in whatever context you're in so Mm -hmm. if you're in a really remote tribe somewhere, it might be acceptable to eat your baby if it's stillborn or something weird like that. Is that a thing? I'm making it up, but I'll bet you it's a thing. Because you, you just went real dark real fast. What I'm saying, well, I yourself. went really dark. Yeah, that's my brain. But there are societies where cannibalism is still practiced. Yeah, in, yeah. You know, and, and maybe it's just that they cut part of someone's someone who's living's leg off and they eat that you know it may not be that they're killing their own people you know, you're to trying to them. backpedal just makes you crazier <laughs> well what i'm saying is things that we would go what can be considered acceptable in other places things that we would sure. put someone away for might be considered totally normal somewhere else he was as normal as pumpkin pie and now look at him ancient romans first introduced ideas of psychosomatic illnesses so they believed that things that you thought about could manifest themselves in your body so if you were having a sickness of the mind it could affect how you're how you're physically feeling and they also you know in, in primitive people like even prior to that considered people who were mentally different as kind of sometimes soothsayers like um they elevated them they thought it was a good thing okay it wasn't considered bad but then as time went on we started to see it as an illness but like people who had visions Uh uh-huh yeah it wasn't considered a bad thing i believe most asylums started cropping up insane asylums homes for the mentally insane the first ones were established in europe and america in the 18th century initially the idea was rehabilitation and care and comfort and helping people but as we all know that takes money it does and it and so when did it turn into uh like the insane asylum in prom stokers uh dracula uh just hosing people down and putting cages on their heads yeah i mean that i think that happened pretty quickly you know it became a situation where it's a it's a combination of doctors truly wanting to fix people and the people who were in these facilities having neither the money nor the wherewithal to resist certain types of um, treatments that were really brutal. You know, and also, I mean, of course, there were just situations where they're just treating them like dogs, like, you know, less than that and just leaving them. A lot of people starved, you know. I don't know about you, but I've seen awful, awful documentary footage of, like, facilities that have just gone 
into disrepair and and no one's caring for the patients and they're just wasting away the yeah. moment in american horror story asylum where at the end she's invest yeah at the end where she's investigating and going you can't you know the smell and the people are starving that's based on reality and that stuff really happened yeah. they got overcrowded and underfunded yes and then they all got released it's <sighs> ah, great to be young and insane the other thing that I came across in reading about all of this is the idea that one of the things that contributes to our lack of understanding and desire to help people who are struggling with this kind of thing is our ingrained ideas of personal responsibility, meaning whether we want to or not, a lot of times we look at people who are dealing with stuff like that and, and we don't understand why they can't just, you know, well, I have to get up every day and go to work. Like, why can't you just figure it out? Yeah. And it's because we believe so much in that American dream of like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and that we can't, it's hard for us if we don't see a physical impairment to understand why that person can't just, you know, anyway, that's different. That's a different topic. And as we segue into movies, which is, that's my strength. Thank goodness there's people like my sister out there who yes, uh, God is out there helping people and going through a lot to get to a point where she can help people. No kidding. I refer to grad school, mostly. Yeah, sure, and looking for a job, because that's the field you want to work in, and yeah. not being able to find one for a while. And But that's, yeah. But for people like that, life would be a lot harder for, for some people. So, we will now try to help society by talking about movies. <laughs> wow. we. <laughs> I guess Jen gets the blue ribbon, and we get tiny gold star stickers for, like, participation. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. I, I personally think movies are important, but it's also like, we're well, not doing the Lord's work here. They have their place. <laughs> but um, we didn't get up early this morning to help people. No. We got up early this morning to do a podcast. <laughs> uh, let's see. So I watched Alone in the Dark. Anything can happen when you're alone in the dark. The only reason the title popped out at me is that I've heard of and haven't yet listened to an episode of. There's a podcast called Alone in the Dark Podcast. Okay. It's a horror podcast. I don't know anything about it. I had just, I had come across it and seen that it is a podcast that exists. So this name has been popping up for you. Yes. Then I saw the movie Alone in the Dark, which came out in 1982, popping up on a couple of lists about movies about insane asylums. So I was like, okay, good a time as any. And then I started watching it and Donald Pleasance is in it. So that pretty much sealed the deal sure. for me. But it's essentially, and I just finished watching this. I haven't had a chance to read up on it to see what people say about it. I don't so, know, just, but I just watched it at pure experience. From the movie to cat to you people. Exactly. Jack Palance is in it, and Martin Landau is in it. Mm. So there's some, in my world, Casey's heavy hitters. A big Jack Palance fan. Really? Yeah. I mean, there are some things that I got to watch Jack Palance do and say in this movie that were just really satisfying. He's so intense. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, to say the least. But it's essentially, it's a movie about a psych psychologist coming or maybe he's a psychiatrist i don't know but he comes to work at a, an asylum to replace another doctor who had worked there but he comes to take his new job replacing a doctor who moved on to a different facility donald pleasance is one of the doctors who works there he might be the, the head doctor he, he might be the head doctor so the new doctor shows up he's told about the facility there's the third floor which is like maximum security that is rather than keeping these people like locked away in a really 
extreme situation, like a prison or somewhere, because these are all men who've killed people, mm -hmm. criminally insane, as it were. Among them are Martin Landau and Jack Palance, are some of the patients. Donald Pleasance's character is kind of a kooky, like, He's unconventional. He believes so much in these men, in the ability of these men to rehabilitate and in giving them freedom to... Jack Palance comes up to him and asks him for a match. He's like, ah, eh, here, take the book. And then a second later, Martin Landau's character has got a, his coat on fire and he's waving it around his head. You know, Donald Pleasance trusts these characters to a fault, it seems. Mm. But um, the key here but is follow that... Follow-up. Yeah. Is this a horror story? It becomes one. Okay. Yeah. So what happens is... The third floor criminally insane men who are, by the way, the maximum security part of it is controlled by electricity, which is key because there's a blackout that allows mm -hmm. them to escape. They believe, erroneously, that the doctor who has come to work there with them, who's replacing the old doctor, they believe he's murdered the other doctor. They have no reason to think that. But they liked the guy that was there taking care of them. So this new guy, they're like, you killed him. There's a blackout. They escape. They come to his house. They kill the babysitter who's watching his girl. So basically what ends up happening is the new doctor, his wife, their daughter, who's like 12 or 13, the wife's sister and like a guy friend of hers and a cop all end up at the house kind of like in a standoff situation where they're being attacked by these mental patients who are, you know, coming in through the window. And like, oh, okay. so it's like a... Like Night of the Living Dead, except they're... Yeah, and it's like just three mental patients, basically. They've who are... cut the phones. <clears throat> exactly. I assume. Yes. Okay. But at one point it's explained that they're like, well, surely someone will call and see that the phone's been cut. And he says something about it's on a circuit, so it'll just ring and ring. Like, and they'll just think we're not picking up. I don't know. Anyway. As, as long as we realize. Yes. That the phone's not working. Yes, yeah. exactly. But I think it's worth a watch. It's, it was fun. Very weird. Just a very weird movie. But... You know, I think it's trying to say some things about mental illness. There's a point in time where the doctor has to kill in self-defense. He kills one of the mental patients. And Jack Palance's character's like, see, we all kill when we when we must. You know, and he's it's I think it's trying to say some things. I'm not sure 100 percent what those things are. But Donald Pleasance's character, it's funny because in Halloween mm -hmm. and Halloween 2. I'm familiar. He is steadfast. We got to get this guy locked up, put him on the Thorazine He'll barely be able to sit up. That's the idea. Like, he, he is taking no chances with Michael Myers. Everyone else has their guard down, and he gets out, and he's, you know, he's he's the one saying, this man is evil. Lock him up. In Alone in the Dark, Donald Pleasance is playing a psychologist, which is typical for him, you know, at this point in his career. Um, it makes sense. It's his bailiwick. But he's kooky. When we first see him... He, like, grabs the new doctor in a bear hug and smiles, and he's like, it's so good to see you! And it's very weird to see him do that. They're trying to paint him as this kind of kooky, unconventional, like, sure. I'm going to do things in a different way kind of doctor. And when he shows up to the house, he shows up to go check to see what's going on. And all the people who are trapped inside the house are shouting out the window at him, like, get back in your car, go get the police! Like, we need your help! And he's like, what? And they're like, they're out here! And he's like, oh! Gentlemen, he's speaking to his patients. He's like, come on out. This is a good chance for us to work on some stuff. Like, he doesn't understand the threat. And I think they're trying to say something about the dangers of that. Because, of course, one of them shows up and cuts off his ear, you know? Okay. Just pulls out a knife and whack. And Donald Pleasance is like, but 
you know. <laughs> He's the trusting but doctor who believes friends. in it. exactly, which is odd because it's so opposite of Doctor Loomis. Anyway, it was good fun. It was it was a lot of fun. All fun right. movie. I it's, I watched on YouTube. So that's Alone in the Dark, mm-hmm. available on YouTube. Yep, the easiest of all tubes to <laughs> to get movies from. Um, and that's 1983, and that was set. I guess 80, 82, I think. Eighty two, and that was set like present day. Yep. All right. I will um, put on the list. I like light movies. I like just romantic stuff. Have you ever heard of uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari? Mm-mm. You can't see film without seeing that first. Whoa, okay. The cross cuts? I'm like really into editing. Editing is like my favorite. I'm like an editing freak. Really? Oh, it's German. Okay. Black and white and silent. Get it. Kat, for this topic, what drew you to Cabinet of Dr. Caligari? I was going through the Netflix horror thriller titles and just looking to see if there's anything that would pop out at me as like, oh, of course I need to watch that. And the cabinet of Dr. Caligari popped up and I was like, of course. So on on that recommendation, it was time for you to to finally watch it. It was finally time. And And I'm so glad I did. It's beautiful. It is. It's German expressionism. It is. Which I just take away meaning slanty. (laughs) Because things are exaggerated and made sort of ominous everything but the people all the streets all the houses all the windows all the doors are just like slanted in it at odd angles and if you think about it spoiler alert mm. the story is being told by a madman well we find out at the end he's that's, in an asylum it. so he's telling what happened to him so of course we're gonna see things looking weird from his perspective right yeah Previous to that, like in the beginning where he's like, let me tell you my story. He's just like in a garden. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, he's just back in the same garden. And it turns out he's in an asylum. So it's while he's telling the story of of what happened to him that everything's all slanty and crazy. Yeah. Which really works. And if it's not working for you in the moment, then at the end when it's revealed. But he was mad all along. I guess that's ostensibly what we're supposed to believe is that at the end you're like, oh, he was just crazy and he's making his doctor a villain because he doesn't like being in an insane asylum. But maybe, maybe it all did happen. Yeah. I don't know. One thing that is just so beautiful about Caligari is it's not the world's most revolutionary plot, although a lot of people cite it as kind of paving the way for a twist ending. But it's not that unique, but the visuals are, you know, it's like every single frame is a painting. It's just beautiful. Yeah. So, I mean, if you haven't watched it, it's free on Netflix right now. It's it's really and, beautiful. And you'll see, well, you'll see its influence. I mean, at this point, it's so ingrained. But as far as its specific visual style, you'll watch a Tim Burton movie and it'll be in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Rob Zombie's Living Dead Girl video is basically redoing Caligari. Yep. The ending of, uh, help me out here, it's one of your new favorite movies. The Guest? No. no. <laughs> Slumber Party Massacre 2. Oh, God, I love that movie. When she's in the asylum at the end, and you know that she's quite mad because the walls and the ceiling are at odd angles. Yes, they and that's are. Just, at this point, just an immediate shorthand for insanity. Mm-hmm. And that goes all the way back to 1920. Nearly 100 years old. But as far as silent films go, I felt like Caligari was pretty relatable. I mean, the acting on purpose is very jerky and weird and the director really made the actors kind of like behave in unnatural ways, but the point is it works. I totally get it.
But yeah, so in the mouth of madness, which is probably the first thing you thought of when you wanted to do this. It is. It's got the word madness right in the title. It starts and ends in an insane asylum as he tells his story. Not the carpenters, too. And then the inmates are running the asylum. And then the monsters are running the asylum. Because the inmates are monsters? I'm not sure. <laughs> it's madness. And that's the beauty, in some ways, of dealing with insanity and, and the thematic elements that are in this film is really anything really messed up can happen. And you don't have to explain it because it's crazy. Yeah. The world is insane. And this one was directed by John Carpenter. Yeah. Greg Nicotero did the makeup, um, of which there is a lot of crazy special effects. Yeah, especially as it gets further along until you get just the wall of monsters. In in The Mouth of Madness, and I now know the number 23, there's a scene of like, don't you know who did this? You did. You just don't remember. And I'm not really a fan of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I guess in, in like small doses where it's like, who put this over here? You did. I don't remember doing it. But the part where they're just missing whole months of their life or years of their life, which can happen, sure. But as an audience member following a character to then have a late in the movie reveal. Are you talking about like when he goes, but you came in here and brought me the manuscript. Don't you remember? Exactly. Right. Uh-huh. Exactly. I was far more a fan of the parts where he was just losing his mind in inches. Yes. Relax, buddy. Relax. You're awake now. It was just a bad dream. If you haven't seen In the Mouth of Madness, the basic plot is that Sam Neill plays an insurance fraud investigator mm-hmm. who has been asked to go find this horror novelist, Sutter Kane. Sutter Kane is a horror novelist whose work has had quite a really potent effect on some of its readers over time. And uh, he's disappeared and they need him to come finish his latest novel or, you know, just... Or they'll lose lots of money. Right. Charlton Heston, who is the owner of the publishing house, sends Sam Neill out with Sutter Kane's editor, who's a woman, to go find him. And Sam Neill has become convinced that he's in Hobbs End, which is a fictional town where a lot of the novels are set. And he's like, we'll find it. We'll find it. He's already become kind of obsessive. Clues. Clues in the the covers of the novels that it's somewhere in Rhode Island. Is that the? New Hampshire? Maybe. Just not Maine. New England. Not Maine. I remember that it wasn't Maine. So they find the town through some weird circumstances. And the woman, the editor who he's with is really getting the brunt of the crazy stuff in the beginning. As they get into the town, she realizes she's recognizing things like this church and the woman behind the counter at the bed and breakfast and all these things that are from the novels, which would drive me complete. I mean, if I if I found my way to Derry, Maine or Castle Rock or whatever and started sure. encountering characters from the novels I'd read, I think that would be enough to drive me insane. But then things just kind of start unraveling. The town is really off. Everything about yeah. it's really messed up. And they find Sutter Kane, and he is basically saying that it's all real. Because people are believing it's real? Yeah. And his books are making them believe? Which I kind of like. I mean, I don't... For me, the movie as a whole doesn't really completely work. But 
I do like certain elements of it a lot. And that element of like reality and fiction bleeding. I think I love. it would have worked better if it had that Blade Runner twist of don't you know you're a character. Yeah. Because he was so much of just like the private eye character. Like everywhere he went seemed to have like Venetian blind shadows. <laughs> I mean, I think that's just a filmmaking choice. Right. But he was just like that chain smoking, single, hard boiled. That detective Lovecraft from Cast a Deadly Spell, kind of. Yeah, know. the hard boiled detective, the 80s, yeah. 90s hard boiled detective. But that's not where they go with it. No, they don't. And considering the ending, I think they should have. Yeah. That he yeah. was also a character. I think the reason the movie stuck out for me as a kid, and I say as a kid, it came out in 94. I remember renting it regularly. But there were two things I wrote down. The two things, the images that I remember from the movie were at the beginning when Sutter Kane's manager, you see him emerging from a storefront, kind of like looking deranged with an axe. And the camera's inside the diner with Sam Neill and his and his partner. Client. Co-worker, client. client. Okay. And they're just having some coffee or whatever. And you see this man walking through the street, coming after them with an axe and busting through the window trying to kill him. I remember that so vividly and going like, what a weird, like it really freaked me out as a kid. And then when you looked in his eyes, he had like double eyes. So creepy. The other thing, him trying to drive out of town and then immediately being back in the town, mm -hmm. like being back downtown, like trying to drive away and then not being able to drive away, that stuck out. Somehow the creepy boy in the old man makeup with the scary white hair on the bicycle didn't stick out to me but watching that this time i was like that's really messed up why didn't why wasn't that something i remembered from watching this in my childhood anyway but i think it was the imagery from the film that really creeped me out as a kid but now that i'm watching it again i can more fully appreciate and i'm very glad to have watched it after i've read all that lovecraft because there was reference to the old ones. There are direct quotes from when they read Lovecraft Kane, stories. Yeah. Lovecraft quotes. It makes me really happy. And, you know, all the monster stuff, like when he opens the door and the old lady's like got all these tentacles and chopping off parts of herself. It's really, really messed up. That's all very Lovecraft. Just the creature element of it. Though, I mean, I don't think it all quite works. I said that already. And while the ending is good, the ending really lets you know that it never really comes together. Completely. Do you want to explain what happens? The world gets overrun as the readers go mad and or turn into monsters. And he comes out of the asylum to a, a wasteland, goes into a movie Whoops. theater. Uh-huh. And watches his own movie. Watches himself on the movie. Right. So at this point, we're out of reality only because of who's running the projector. And is, I, and is I had that all... thought and I usually don't have those thoughts, but I was watching that and I'm watching him watch the film and I'm like, who's up in the booth, huh? And who's starring as him? Yeah. And the answer is, well, I guess then it's in his own mind. So he is crazy. Maybe. So there are monsters. Well, maybe not because monsters probably aren't running a projection. So he's crazy in a world of monsters? So in addition to a world of monsters, he's also crazy within that world of monsters. So if we were to see him, he'd just be sitting in a dark theater looking at a blank screen while monsters are outside. Right. And the monster would be like, look at that guy. Yeah. He's crazy. He thinks there's something on that screen. Oh, time to go be monsters. Yeah, it doesn't all work. But then again, I've said you know, this you before. You know make it work better? If it turned out he was a character. Yeah, it would. Take that note 20 years ago, John Carpenter. I know. I know this book will drive people crazy. Well, let's hope so. The movie comes out next month. Um, so, 
we've got one thing left, and that is also Anthony Perkins in, what's it called? I can't say it without saying it in a really dramatic, accented fashion. Please so I'm do. going to say, how awful about Alan, which is just the most ridiculous, hilarious title I think I've ever heard. And I love it so much. The title. I also like the movie, but the title is outrageous. And no, no, I found on your Twitter, I believe, was a vine, uh-huh. which was just the text, which I thought was in the beginning. Nope. And then I thought, oh, that must be from like a trailer. And then I got to the end of the movie, and at the end of the film, they bring back the title of the movie, like, sort of one word at a time. Yeah. With, and like, bing, 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 bing. Like, it's, it's actually supposed kind of to be how, scary. It, yeah, but that's also the do, like, like, that darn cat. So it's not that scary. <laughs> well, in the context, it's supposed to be scary because the last right. shot of the film is... Like a close-up on Anthony Perkins' face looking maniacal like at the end of Psycho, which actually doesn't make any makes sense to me. Sense. Makes no sense It's in like, this hey, movie. this guy was in Psycho. That was scary, the end. Yeah, I know. So this movie was shot in 10 days, and it shows. It's not a great film. I really liked it, though. I mean, I think the relationship between him and Julie... What's Harris. her name? Julie Harris was really fun and, like, not fun... I thought they did a great job as actors because the relationship was so fraught with emotion. Yeah. Because I should say, do you want to set up what the movie's about? There's a house fire. And yeah, the beginning, the opening scene of the movie is really dramatic. It's like yeah. suddenly you're at a ten, you're at 11 because the house is on fire. And an old professor is killed. His daughter's trying to save him. She gets burned. You know who doesn't go in and try to save him? The son. Alan. Alan. Played by Anthony Perkins. But the daughter does. The and daughter. she her face gets burned. Yeah. And she's on the ground, and she rolls over, and you can see her scars. The people standing around, one of the women goes, ah, her face! Yeah. It's really ridiculous and, and then he, melodramatic. Poor Anthony Perkins. Like, that's not his best line delivery. He just goes, I'm blind. I'm blind. I'm blind. Well, I think they're trying to convey that he's stunned. I mean, if you suddenly went psychosomatically blind, you'd probably be yeah. stunned. No, he's not completely blind. Or, no, he gets partway cured. <laughs> And the way we know that is he's now only part blind. Yeah. So it's very fuzzy. He's just making out Super shapes. Super blurry. And it's Super and blurry. I, as I said, it's psychosomatic blindness, which means there's no physical reason for his blindness. It's due to the trauma and stress of what happened. And yes. probably the guilt, we can say, of like how, you know, he didn't valiantly try to go in and save his father. He just And the sister did and she got yeah, burned for exactly. her efforts. Oh, and all this is because he left like paint thinner next to a heater. Yeah, it's unintentionally his fault that the fire got started. So a whole lot of guilt and shame going into his pseudo blindness. Yeah, so then he comes back. He he, he was back in an asylum house. for a little while being treated. But the yeah. doctor says, We can let you out. You'll go live with your sister. So he goes back to the house. And she's like, We've taken in a border. A name like Christopher or something. Hmm. Doesn't matter. Uh, something happened to his throat. So he talks like this. Hello, and Alan. You only see shapes. So, by the way, I was onto her, like, immediately. Oh, yeah? Well, first I was like, hmm, something's up with this border. We never see his face. And then as soon as the border leaves, she comes in and says, I just talked to him on the porch. It's like, hmm, by the rules of thrillers, you're the border. Right. Although for really no good reason. Mm. For really no good reason. I thought it was because she was supposedly scarred that she then took on a second personality. But then it turns out in a reveal, she's not scarred at all. No, I love it. She wears a plastic prosthetic on her cheek because... To cover nothing. Right. To fool a blind man. 
<laughs> I know it's ridiculous, but she. In case but I love her face. I, but I love the idea of how you can't walk out in public with scars on your face because people will, I don't know, make the sign of the cross and run. So she has a plastic prosthetic formed over her cheek to hide her disgusting facial scars. But as Marshall said. He pulls off her plastic prosthetic at the it's end. It's like the first thing he does once he gets his sight back. Yeah. By the way, he's and, like, right. ah. And he sees that. She says, I had them removed, but I wish they were still there because it was all your fault that he died. Yeah. Oh, they've both got issues. And it all culminates with he is healthy and she goes to the asylum. And then it's like one year later, he's living his happy life and gets a letter from her saying like, well, I'm better now. And Doctor says I can come home if I can come home with you. Yeah. To take care of me. I'm, oh, I'm very sorry for what I did to you. And then... He starts to kind of go blind again. He goes blind again. Has and a maniacal look because... Crazy at the that's camera. That's how we ended a different film. And then the vinable text... Yeah. How bing, awful bing, about bing, Alan. Which comes up in red, the end. And we should say that throughout the film, he's being gaslit. As it were. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's what... Is, is that the purpose of having the border? I think so. I think it's to torture him and drive him kind of crazy. I, yeah, I guess. But essentially, the border, he, he the person renting the, the room is... being malicious. Right. And he keeps hearing a whisper, Alan. <sighs> which is, you know, spooky. And he believes at one point, like, he's feeling about the hallway in the middle of the night because he hears this voice and he feels a hand reach and try to pull him down the stairs. And at the end, like he's even shut up in a pantry with a fire. Like she's trying to kill him. Yeah. And I guess it's just all revenge for much like the fact that he let their father die, who she loved and worshiped beyond anything else. Much like actual gaslight, the film gaslight. Yeah. This is needlessly complicated. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But fun. It's fun. I mean, it's Anthony Perkins, who I just love watching do anything, I guess. I enjoy kitsch Mm -hmm. in my life, but I've not much reached that level of um, being catty about 1970s made-for-TV movies. Mostly it was before my time. But this one I'm I'm on board for. Yeah. And uh, next time I run into uh, Brian Rohan, when I've I've got to return uh, Psychos 2, 3, and 4 to him, we're going to have ourselves a chat about how awful about Alan. I'm going slightly mad I'm going slightly mad It finally happened Happened Finally You know what we didn't do is just sort of a, a subject wrap-up. Oh, yeah. So, Kat, since this was your brainchild, how do you feel we did? I think we did a great job. I think there's no way to cover everything we possibly would want to cover. I mean, I could do a whole three it's, episodes about a horror, really American Horror Story Asylum. It's, yes. it's a huge, you know what I mean? Like, we didn't talk much about that, but it holds a huge place in my heart. Obviously, there's we can't get to everything, but I think we did a really fun job of like touching on some of the stuff and why it's scary and watching new stuff and trying to find some titles we can recommend to people. So yeah, I thought it was fun. I'm, you know, I I don't. I do you feel any crazier now that we've spent a month in the in the mouth of madness, Marshall? I am relieved, mentally relieved, just because we come off well because the subject was so 
big, mm-hmm. I had trouble knowing, like, are we even going to be, like, on the same page at all yeah. here when we discuss it? I think we did all right. Let's uh, let's wrap it up. Um, thanks for listening. You made it to the end of an episode. There's a lot of episodes out there. What month did we start this in back in 2012? April. April. Okay, so on April 1st, the three-year anniversary of the podcast. Short by about two weeks, though, right? Because it would have been April 13th when yeah. we released. Yeah. Well, I'm going to re-release our first episode. Wow. And then a month after that, our second. And then a month after that, our third which, if you recall, suffered some uh, technical difficulties. Oh, sure, yeah. Because I didn't know not to put the microphone too close to the computer's fan. Ah, memories. Now I have a laptop that doesn't have a fan, so that's how I've progressed. By the way, really quickly, Mm. um, I tweeted before we started this that we were recording and if anybody had any questions. And we had someone, Sergio Cervantes, at Sergio underscore ATX on Twitter, say, have you guys watched What We Do in the Shadows yet? Good stuff. I haven't. I've heard about it. Oh, that, well, that's that's new. That yeah. just came out. Mm-hmm. Looks fun. It does look fun. Yeah. No, Sergio, sorry to disappoint. But I really do want to see it. When I see it, I will talk about it on Boys and Ghouls. But I, oh, I try to hold myself accountable for seeing new stuff. And I did see The Witch. Go on. Which premiered at Sundance this year and through various means was able to see it. I didn't go to Sundance, but... Let's just say if you haven't heard of it, go look into it. It's a period piece. It's set in the 1600s. It is fantastic. Okay. And I've watched it twice. Look forward to it as a horror fan who's ready for something that will really affect you. Okay. Well, folks, from cat's mouth to your ears, and uh, if you like what you hear here, please check out any of our other episodes. And follow us on Facebook. We'd love to know who you are. Mm-hmm. Check us out on Pinterest or Tumblr or Twitter. Twitter at Boys and Ghouls. Instagram at Boys and Ghouls Podcast. We're out there waiting for you. Yeah, please say hi. We're waiting for you in the closet. On that note. <laughs> All right, folks. Thanks for listening. And uh, Kat, until next time. Beware the moon. Yeah. Be there.